Okay. Where is the, there is a ton of stuff to go through, so we're gonna we're gonna get started. So the topic once again is the Bible, and um, so starting in this session, what we're gonna do in this session and the remaining three sessions is we're going to pose questions. Can everybody back hear me? If you can't, come to the front. That's a simple. That's a simple solution. The front row. I mean, these are the high dollar seats down here. And I backed up just to give you more personal space. Right? So, I can't see that far back anyway. I got my reading glasses on, so. Okay, so, what we're going to do for this session and each of the others, the overarching theme is uh, uh, what's going on in terms of the interface between the Bible and our culture. So I intend to attack that by asking questions that a, a seeker, a doubter, a non-believer, a skeptic might ask. These questions are really spawned by the culture. They kind of have an edge to them. They're, they're edgy. It's as if the questioner doesn't really expect a satisfactory response. But what we need to do is kind of dig into the backstory. Why might they be asking that question? What is it about the culture? What is it about 2023 that would prompt somebody to ask this question? And then we will, for each question, uh, suggest at least some kind of response. It probably wouldn't be satisfactory to the questioner. But at least for us, I mean, for some of us, we think about these things, and at least we can kind of wrap our minds around it a little bit. So that's what we're going to do. So let's review a little bit. Uh, last week, uh, this is what this was the outline for last week. We're not going to talk our way through it, but the key the key is uh, the word relevance. Um, it's the interface, and and relevance is being uh, relevant. Uh, we may say, well, of course, but there are even Christians who are uh, saturated in the culture who are beginning to have doubts and they're not quite sure why. They're not quite sure why. It's because we're swimming. We are literally swimming in the culture. We can't help it. It, it impacts everything else. So we're going to try to, we're going to try to make our way through that uh, a little bit. There is, there's been a couple of questions. Um, uh, there's a, there's a phone here that's recording. So Michael tells me last week class showed up on iTunes. I don't know. You know, I'm kind of hoping those are behind a firewall somewhere, somehow, so Ron's going to work on that. At the end of this class, at the end of five weeks, early August, um, I'm going to go back through these slides, convert them all to PDF, and then send to somebody, Greg, or somebody, a link, a, a Dropbox link, so that you can go to it and download and look at the PDF slides. It won't have the animations, those are super cool. But it'll have the slides and you can sort of get it. And so potentially you could link up an iTunes audio with the slides and make some kind of sense out of it. Alright, uh, so last week several people came up and said several things. Comments fell into uh, roughly three categories. Uh, we could have talked about blank for several hours. Your homework assignment is as we go through this and you say to yourself, Wow, this could be a great small class. 
then you need to talk to adult head. Once again, that's Kevin, David White, Brian Mayer, the Headmans, and the Neelys. Talk to one of them about a small class. Uh, one of the guys that came up was Brian. Brian came up and says, hey, digital age, AI, next thing I know, I get a text back saying that uh, Brent and Brian, uh, probably maybe in January, are going to teach class on Christians in the digital age, specifically looking at AI. Okay, that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about. So as we go through this, make notes, make mental notes, talk to adult head. They are looking to populate the adult curriculum calendar with things that are uh, not just of interest to you, but uh, things that would be useful to you, okay? And then several people talked about the whole thing about reading. We had a little carve out about reading. Susan came up, samples, and said, it's never too late to begin reading and then tackling difficult materials uh, pays rich dividends. Okay, just, just, just a little background here. Uh, Alistair McGrath is a Northern Irish theologian, currently professor at the University of Oxford. Uh, this, these three steps, he puts them in his writings uh, pretty often. Uh, when he talks, when he gives talks, you hear about it. People quote him all the time or misquote him on this. This is, this is from him. Um, and what he usually says, what he usually says along with this is something, um, Something like, consider a bottle of penicillin, he says. I may accept that the bottle exists. I may trust in its ability to cure, but nothing changes unless I receive the drug. I must allow it, the drug, to destroy the bacteria that are slowly killing me. Otherwise, I have not benefited from my faith in it. So just as faith in penicillin is connected to a cure, so faith forges a link between the cross and us. A living responsive faith unites us with the risen Christ and everything he gained through his obedience and resurrection. That's what this is talking about. But I like this statement because of the second sentence. You then have to make sure it's true. Well, the obvious question jumps out at you, doesn't it? What is the antecedent to the pronoun it? Well, it could be information about Jesus. I'm going to say it is the Bible. Make sure it's true. For the purposes of this class, we're going to make sure that we're confident that it's true and any information that is contained therein. Okay. I listened recently to a podcast. It had David Briannis from Westminster and uh, Kevin DeYoung. They were talking about the it, it, this 2023 is the 100th anniversary of the publication of Christianity and Liberalism by Machin. And uh, new edition is coming out. Kevin wrote forward to it. Uh, there's a guy, there's a guy, uh, uh, Pierce Taylor Hibbs, who listened to it and on his blog, kind of had some reaction notes. I stumbled across that. I thought, cool. So so I like kind of how he framed it. Uh, so anyway, what he said, what Hib said was, beliefs ripple. And that includes Christian beliefs. And I think he is absolutely right. 
So what he meant by that was disbelief in one thing affects belief in another. So let's just take as an example the rise, again, in universalism. Universalism says that God's love and mercy will eventually reconcile all sinful and alienated human souls. That's what universalism says. Well, here's your ripple effect. If there's no hell, then you have to revisit the doctrine of sin, since not repenting of sin is what lands most people in hell. But then you have to look at the doctrine of Christ, since Christ came to save the world from sin. But if sin doesn't actually put anybody into hell because hell doesn't exist, then why did Christ come? From what did we need saving, if not sin? Or do we even need saving? Get the ripple effect? The ripples keep coming. If we redefine Christ's mission, Christ is the Son of God, then we must redefine our image, our doctrine of God, especially the notion of God's holiness. Who is this God who sent himself to a humanity that didn't need saving from hell that, by the way, doesn't exist? If we don't think holiness is an attribute of God, then what can we say about the nature of God? This is a classic. Uh, Richard Niebuhr is, the, is one of the two brothers. This is a famous quote. He's one of the more important uh, theological ethicists of the 20th century, early 20th century. Best known for his 51 book, uh, 51 book right, Christ and Culture. It's a great book. He says, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That is what Ripple is all about. Okay. But for this topic, it seems to me there's one more little Ripple. If we're leaving behind Scripture as the authority on who God is, do we simply associate God with anything we feel is loving, beautiful, or mysterious. So with all this in mind, let's look at question number one. Isn't it all a matter of just interpretation? Now, this might be rephrased. People wouldn't actually say this. They might. They would probably say, why should I believe you? You say one thing, she says something else. No one agrees about anything, much less about what the Bible says. You ever heard that? Absolutely you've heard that. Wrestling with this question could occupy us for weeks, but we don't have that much time. So I want to look at three reasons people might ask this question. We'll start at the shallow end and then wade it into deeper water. We're going to spend more time on this question than any other because it impacts every other question we might ask over the next several weeks. The first reason you might ask this question is about denominations. Why are there so many Protestant denominations? This has fueled the skeptics' fires for generations. This is a good topic. Take note. This is a good topic for a small class downstairs, but let's make some comments right now. Why are there so many Christian denominations? 
for starters, for starters, let's not forget that denominations are made up of churches, which are made up of people who often just do not get along. Like everyone else, Christians struggle with pride, selfishness, stubbornness, the desire to wield power, hypocrisy, so they sometimes respond to their disagreements poorly. Secondly, there are theological, geographical, and cultural differences. This has often led to debates and divisions within churches and denominations, and this led to the creation of new churches and new denominations. It's an unfortunate situation, but really, it's a reality given human nature. Christianity, of course, is not alone in this. Almost every world religion is divided and subdivided into major groups for the same reasons. But beyond all that, Christians sometimes have legitimate disagreements about all sorts of beliefs or practices. Baptism, who and how. Church structure, leadership, communion, or the thorniest of all, kitchens in the church building. <laughs> but there is an essential set of beliefs that are common across all evangelical Christian denominations. Now, you remember, you know we are an evangelical church. You know that. How do we know that? Because we stand on the same four pillars other evangelical churches do, which is the authority of the Bible, the centrality of the cross, the necessity of personal conversion, and Christian action, a, a life of sanctification in which we live in the world. It's a life of action and good works. That's, that's, we are evangelical. There are common beliefs. No matter what our differences are, we share, we share common beliefs. We believe in the three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe all humans are sinful and in need of grace. Christians hold that only Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, make it possible for us to experience God's forgiveness and grace. Christians also believe that the Bible most clearly reveals these spiritual truths. This is a famous quote that often gets kind of Garble, not surprisingly, he wrote it in Latin. Uh, he's a 17th century theologian. In essentials, unity, and doubtful things, liberty, and all things, charity. Almost everybody in here has heard that. That is just great. A second thing that people point to that might generate the question it's all about interpretation is the Protestants... Uh, claim, they say we claim, the Protestants claim that everyone who reads the Bible can get it, which is clearly not the case. In terms of authority of Scripture, the Roman Catholic Church holds that Scriptures as well as the tradition of the Church are the dual authorities over doctrine and practice. The early reformers latched on to the term perspicuity, which means clearness or clarity of the scripture. Charles Hodge, a 19th century uh, Presbyterian theologian, said probably the seminal 
sort of thing uh, that, that kind of is the grassroots thing. He said, the Bible is a plain book. It is intelligible by the people. And they have a right and are bound to read and interpret it for themselves so that their faith may rest on the testimony, testimony of the scriptures and not that of the church. Such is the doctrine of Protestants on this subject. All right? What is a response to this? For a working, for a really working definition of persecuting, it's useful for us to turn to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It has been the benchmark language for the term, and almost all interpretations and discussions start right here. Now, the Westminster Standards became the dominant confession of Reformed Christianity. That is, Protestant denominations connected by a common Calvinism system of doctrine. That would be like Presbyterians, certain Puritan groups, Congregationalists. Interestingly, when some Baptist groups, some non-Baptist denominations, and some Methodists want to create confessional texts of their own, they often reach back to the Westminster Standards for their words and tenets. Let's look at the Westminster Standard 1.7. This is a modern translation of the original text. The meanings of all the passages in the Bible are not equally obvious, nor is any individual passage equally clear to everyone. However, everything which we have to know, believe, and observe in order to be saved is so clearly presented and revealed somewhere in the Bible that the uneducated as well as the educated can sufficiently understand it by the proper use of the ordinary means of grace. Well, that's a lot of words. So what's my definition of persecution? Well, I believe it's possible, it's possible for no, for Christians to know what the scripture teaches about the great doctrines. And God actually wants his people to know, and he uses words. He uses one say. But it is not, I mean, this goes back to Ron's class, front and center. Everybody remembers Ron's class, January. Everybody's here. It's not as simple as picking up the Bible occasionally, reading a couple of verses and going, aha, this is what God wants me to know. Not going to work. Never has. Back in 2009, Professor Gruden was invited to go to England and he gave this lecture. And among the parts of the lecture, he usefully gave these qualifying characteristics about perspicuity. Taken all together, when you look at all these, which I think are eminently reasonable and drawn from Scripture, taken all together, this seems to be, to me, a reasonable response to the challenges mounted against perspicuity. Okay. So now we've looked at two reasons for the question why there are so many interpretations. Third reason is terrible. Interpretive pluralism. Now the question, remember, isn't it all a matter of interpretation? This question stands on several assumptions, predominant of which is relativism. It implies the Bible can hardly be believed because it can be shown that there are a range of interpretations. That's called interpretive pluralism. 
However, humans variously interpret data in every sphere of life. It's true. So if so, so, so if if people ask us and they slander this business about uh, knowing, they often don't want clarity. Why would they even ask the question? Because it often short circuits the interpretive process altogether. It means they don't want to talk about it. Well, before we attempt a response, we first need to look at key concepts which define where we've been and where we are as a culture. Modern and postmodern are familiar terms, but let's review some defining features. Modern and postmodern were terms that were developed in the 20th century. They, there is a significant divide on the timeline that separate these two. Modern is related to logical, rational thinking, whereas postmodern has denied this logical thinking. The modernist was in search of an abstract truth of life. The postmodernist did not believe, does not believe in abstract truth or in universal truth. In modernism, there's an attempt to develop a coherent worldview, the postmodern thinks morality is relative. A modern thinker analyzes the subject by going deeply into it, whereas the postmodern thinker does not believe in in-depth analysis. In fact, the postmodern thinks that the text that purports to tell about the past is of no use in present times. Well, believe it, or not, believe it or not, we now have post, postmodernism. The good news is, they're still accumulating their definitions. They can't agree on what it means. They just know we're there. They just don't know what they mean. Fortunately, for our discussion, there is one characteristic of post-postmodernism that is front and center. It puts importance on the recipients of the text who become partial or complete authors of the text. So, let me just say, intellectuals, artists, screenwriters, etc. have moved from postmodern in part. The culture, the culture, us, we are still swimming in the downstream affluence of the postmodern thinking. And our culture is held captive by the tenets of postmodernism. But, Let's look at this thing about the recipients of the text. It does not matter what Charles Dickens wanted to say or what he actually said. A postmodernist, postmodernist doesn't concern himself with that at all. All that matters is the meaning I pull from it. I wished I had known this in high school. That have short-circuited a whole lot of tests and conversations and essays. But a good example of this, I, I am a fan of YouTube, going to YouTube and seeing these, uh, seeing the excerpts of the talent shows, American Idol, America's Got Talent, The Voice. At first blush, they appear to be a talent show with judges who use criteria to make the final call. However, at some point, the viewers, 
The consumers take over and they decide the winner. The audience enters the competition without criteria and they determine the outcome. It no longer matters what the judges think or what the producers want. That's, that's, that's just an analogy of what's going on in this interpretive thing. And you say, well, that's terrible. Well, it gets worse. There are language theorists, there are more of them, who have abandoned any concept of truth as corresponding with reality. Instead, truth is a function of language. No statement or proposition can be limited to a single meaning. It's completely dependent upon context. So, applied to the Bible, it means that the context of the reader, 2023, whoever you are, whatever, you know, whatever makes up you, the context of the reader is everything and completely determines the interpretation of the text. Anybody seen that? You probably felt it a little bit. There's an awful corollary. And that is, this death of truth. Now it reveals itself as the denial of the concept of the truly disinterested knower. That just simply means that no one, the, the thought is no one can stand beyond history and human society at a vantage point that could offer certain knowledge, disinterested, objective knowledge. Truth, therefore, is not objective, but a system of ordered procedures for the production, circulation, and operation of statements. Now, what does that mean? Good question. What does that mean? Such a system of truth is standing in a reciprocal relationship with systems of power that produce and sustain it. So any attempt to assert truth about a historical event or any other reality is perceived as a power play. So we're left with the Bible as a tool of manipulation used by powerful people to control other people. You may not know this. God is no longer God. He's called the universal signified. But since there's no universal signified, everything is reduced to an interplay between knowledge and power. Power produces a certain type of knowledge, the display of which is biased in, play, in favor of the powerful. Now what does that mean? Good question. Here it is. If we are in tune culturally, and we come to read the Bible, we must be suspicious of the writers who are exercising power over us. They're wanting us to do something I'm not even sure I want to do. And even more suspicious of anyone who tries to help us interpret the Bible. Any attempt at preaching from or explaining the Bible is a sinister attempt to gain or maintain power over another. Can it get any worse? Yes, it can. You're in the right place this morning. It's called identity politics. This is familiar to all of us. Identity politics refers to people evaluating issues 
through the lens of their association with a specific group. Last week we talked about the lens through which we see reality, right? And refining that lens, okay? There are assumptions that people not in a particular identity group are responsible for the negative situations for those who are. And there are certain terms used with identity politics. We're familiar with these terms. Well, what does that have to do with the Bible and understanding it? Let's say you're talking to someone who's expressed doubts about the Bible. In the language of groups, are the two of you necessarily in the same group? Can the other person perceive identity politics in play here? Let's take a quiz. Barrett Kaufman is a good guy. He wants to talk to you about Jesus, who is revealed in the Bible. Does he have any markers that disqualify him as trustworthy? Yes. He's white male. Disqualified. Okay. Well, just obvious. Okay. Well, not so obvious in this culture. Right, right, right. All of these people are Kaufmans. They all have Kaufman as their surname. Now, if we found a Kaufman who was willing to have the same conversation about the same thing and they didn't have the disqualifiers Barrett is burdened with, would that totally satisfy you? No. Why not? Because the Bible clearly is a book that advocates submission to its authority as described in his pages. So, there's two responses to the issue of interpretive pluralism. One is short, the other is longer. The longer one with more words, we're going to do next week. I want you to think about this. This is a shorter version, just thinking about interpretive pluralism. Think about one of the authors of one of the Gospels. Three things could be said, and only one of which is true. The author has genuine motives, but has been deceived and is passing along mistaken information. It's possible that the author knows the information is wrong, and he's intentionally trying to deceive the reader, or the author has genuine motives, and by and large, he's recording what actually happened. Now, we could actually test the possibilities by asking questions of the text of what the author wrote. And they fall into two categories, inductive and deductive. Inductive questions look at, does the text in question make sense of the world external to it? Can the reader make connections between the text and the real world all around us? Or does this text fashion a circle of reality that you have to step into and suspend the real world within it? Deductive questions does the text in question make in and of itself? So it doesn't look outside, it just looks, you're just looking inside. Does it make sense? Does the reading of it hold together? Is it, does it coherent? Does it contradict itself? And if we step inside the text, does it make sense as a whole? Now here's the deal. We're not really asking a skeptical person 
to naively assume on, on my word, just because I say so, the Bible. What we're asking for them is to be open-minded enough to read the gospel account and ask questions of it, like we just asked those questions. To scrutinize it, discover if what is found is compelling, meaningful, and truthful. Okay, so next week we're going to set up a scenario and we're going to look at a longer response to this interpretive pluralism. But I really want to quickly go to question number two. I've got these questions and not enough time, so we're just going to do it fast. This question, can we know anything about history, has everything to do with what we just talked about. Everything evolves from, or is a spin-off from what we just talked about and and are going to talk about next week. Why do we even ask this question? When I taught this class 40 years ago, there were two, two things I said about this question, can we know anything about history? The first one was, Yo, use the same criteria for the Bible that you use for any other ancient text. If you think it's, if you're going to accept that account, then you accept our account. The other one is multiple lines of evidence. We're going to come back to that. I still think both these responses are perfectly legitimate. But things are different in 2023. People will hear you say that and either not understand it or not agree with it. So what is their problem? The problem is loss of certainty. Our own experiences deeply influence our ability to see reality. There's a growing frustration with scientific progress or something that's reported as progress, and there is increasing distrust of statements by authorities, whether they are in political realms, judicial or educational, religious. We live in an area of fake news and internet scams. So people are fairly skeptical of any form of certainty about a given version of a set of events. We don't want to fall for propaganda, so we hedge our bets. This last one, many settle for internal coherence but disdain the world. You know what that means? I don't trust anyone but myself. I have experienced history. I've heard of history, and I hear people who misuse history. I will decide. I will decide what to make of history. It's my happiness that's at stake here, and I surely know what's best for me. Well, how do we know about the past? Well, up until the early 20th century, most historians conceived of history as an exact science. But that changed in the early 20th century. James Harvey Robinson is just one of a number. But this is great. His contention was the study of the past should serve primarily to elucidate the present so that we can bring about greater advancement and progress. So a new history has arisen. Personal interpretation of the text is in vogue even among historians. It received a new lease on life in the 60s when deconstructionists, postmodern, postmodern philosophers, began to publish their writings. And today, to what have we evolved? Today, not only is history increasingly unknowable, 
But those who seek to bring history to bear on the present are accused of having some motivation of power or control in doing so. Any Christian seeking to make Christ's life, death, and resurrection known to others can therefore be written off in this way. I personally believe in converging lines of evidence. You know why? It's the backbone of research in every field. Every field. You find data points. The data points are are analyzed. They are evaluated. And a claim or conclusion is derived. It's called consilience. Consilience is the principle that Evidence from independent, unrelated sources can converge upon a strong conclusion. We, we deny the power, the possibility of knowing history through converging lines of evidence at great cost. This is, this is a classic example. Eisenhower in his book talks about he was called upon at the end of the war to inspect the Nazi death camps. And he wrote about the events in his diary. Let me just read from his diary. I visited every nook and cranny of the camp because I felt it my duty to be in a position from then on to testify firsthand about the things in case there ever grew up at home the belief or assumption that the stories of Nazi brutality were just propaganda. Holocaust deniers. Remember that? talked about that last week. Some members of the visiting party were unable to go through the ordeal. I not only did so, but as soon as I returned to Patton's headquarters that evening, I sent communications to both Washington and London, urging the two governments to send instantly to Germany a random group of newspaper editors and representative groups from the national legislatures. I felt that the evidence should be immediately placed before the American and British publics in a fashion that would leave no room for cynical doubt. Familiar passage. Luke and other gospel writers recorded events that had taken place. They recorded those events with scrupulous accuracy. Their intention in writing was that everyone who wasn't an eyewitness could read about Christ confidently knowing that they had been thoroughly researched and compiled, they compiled the material in a rigorous way. If we cannot defend the possibility of access to history, whether events happened a century ago or 2,000 years ago, the consequences are huge. And frankly, many sensitive, intelligent people walking around out there do not wish to go down this road. They may have a reluctance to accept the historicity of the New Testament, but that is a very different matter from a blanket denial of the possibility of not, of, of not knowing history at all. So a possible response, can we know anything about history? I think in word, yes. Some people may already know. We will reconvene right here next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
your loving kindness. You cover us in mercy. We, we are marinated in your grace. We thank you for Jesus. He is the living word. And we thank you for the Bible, your words to us. Father, we commit this morning to be spirit-filled, fueled, fueled by your righteousness to be advocates, to be advocates for the gospel of Jesus who is the Christ. Father, I pray for every individual and every family in this room. We pray your um, we, we pray your long-standing um, walk with them as they go back out into the culture. Father, it's your desire and it's their desire to make inroads, to make a difference. So that's the prayer of our hearts this morning, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. See you next week.